I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. General surgeons treat many different areas, upper GI, lower GI, breast, endocrine, vascular, but all of them get called to casualty for one particular diagnosis, that being the acute abdomen. What actually is this acute abdomen? What conditions make up the diagnosis? How is it assessed and treated? Today we're going to learn more from Dr. Adrian Anthony. G'day and welcome to Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, a program born during COVID times to emulate that general chit-chat and banter around the hospital with the idea of educating the medical student and GP alike. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and it's my pleasure to bring Aussie Med Ed to you. And in this episode, we get to speak to Dr. Adrian Anthony. He's a fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and a consultant general surgeon at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Adelaide. He's also a senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide and coordinates the surgical program for the clinical years. Adrian has a particular interest in surgical education and is actively involved in this area through the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. He's going to talk to us about the acute abdomen and the different conditions that make up such a diagnosis. He's also going to give us his pearls of wisdom to assessing a patient with an acute abdominal complaint. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast has been produced, the Ghana people, and pay my respect to the elders both past, present and emerging. Now, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Adrian Anthony, a colleague of mine from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital who's extensively involved in surgical education, and he's going to talk to us about the acute abdomen. Welcome, Dr. Adrian Anthony. Thank you, Gavin. I really appreciate this chance to talk to you about the acute abdomen. It's a pretty common surgical presentation. It's estimated that probably between 10 to 15 ED presentations relate to an acute abdominal problem. And it does affect all demographic groups, although depending on the underlying pathology, uh, you know, it may affect uh, males or females more in certain age groups. Yeah, I'm sure most of us have heard about the term or have heard the term acute abdomen, and it's a pretty commonly used term, and it is commonly understood what it actually means. But in actual fact, if you try to identify a standard definition for the acute abdomen, there's actually no consistent definition. And so I thought it was important that maybe we start off by just talking a little bit about the concept of the acute abdomen, and then we can certainly go into presentation and how we manage it, etc. That would be fantastic. How do you actually define the acute abdomen? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to understand that the acute abdomen is not actually a diagnosis in itself. It actually describes a set of presentations which requires a diagnosis and the actual underlying pathologies. Well, there's a whole plethora of them. So the way I sort of conceptualize the acute abdomen is to think about five S's. The first one is that it usually indicates that it's sudden in onset. The second S is about the severity of the pain. So it's a fairly intense type abdominal pain. The third is that it relates to or or often will be associated with a sick patient. So, And then the fourth S is it may well signify a serious pathology. And the fifth S is that that pathology uh, may well be a surgical mischief. So the five S's, sudden onset of pain, severe intensity, sick patient, serious pathology, and surgical mischief. So I use that to sort of help conceptualize the acute abdomen. But you, you, you would have noticed that I, I, I said sometimes or often, 
because there are caveats and some important caveats to this concept. And the caveats are that sometimes the acute abdomen has an insidious onset. One example of that is cecal distension of the right colon. Sometimes the pain is actually not severe in intensity. Sometimes it can be quite mild or in some cases even minimal pain. So pain is actually not the primary presenting symptom. Gut ischemia is a good example of that. And sometimes the underlying pathology is actually not clinically significant, even if it's sudden onset and severe pain. And I think a really good example of that is appendagitis associated with the epiploic fat on on a bit of bowel. And of course, we all know about some non-surgical causes like pyelonephritis or urinary retention, pelvic inflammatory disease, maybe even extra abdominal causes like rib fractures or acute MI, shingles. I've certainly managed a patient who I thought had cholecystitis, and in fact, they ended up having shingles. Excellent. So what you're really saying is a huge number of conditions that make up the acute abdomen, and that's not all of them are as bad as each other. I suspected that was the case, given that I knew that splenic ruptures don't always need surgery nowadays, and that with the treatment of oral, with oral antibiotics, that peptic disease may be reducing. How do you divide up the different conditions that make up the surgical acute abdomen? The, the first thing to keep in mind is that the underlying pathological process, which is not the actual diagnosis, but the actual mechanism by which pain is generated, relates really only to a handful of processes. So obstruction is one, perforation is another, bleeding, infarction, and uh, inflammation. And there's some overlap with all of these, of course, uh, and obstruction can then lead to, to perforation Perforation in itself is associated with inflammation, bleeding and infarction sometimes can go together. So it is important to keep that in mind, but I guess it's important to also just understand the underlying mechanism, if you like, or the pathological mechanism by which pain is actually generated. And then we can start looking at all the different types of pathologies. Right. Actually, a question that comes to mind is that these pathological processes that produce the pain are the same things that also cause the rebound tenderness, or is the rebound tenderness just a sign of the actual seriousness of the condition? This is that sort of way of assessing how bad things are when you assess the patient. So that point really speaks to understanding the innovation of the abdominal contents. Rebound tenderness, or in fact any tenderness, really relates to parietal irritation. So you may be aware or you may recall that the abdominal contents have two broad sets of innovation. One is the uh, visceral innovation, which is essentially autonomic. And then there's the parietal, which is somatic. And it's the parietal, when it's irritated or stimulated, that will actually lead to that really focal, localized, sharp tenderness, if you like, on palpation. And that's the one that's associated with either guarding or rebound tenderness. And just by knowing that and eliciting that type of symptom when you are actually examining a patient actually gives you a reasonably good clue as to what's going on. And getting back to your a part of your question about, well, do these mechanisms lead to that? Only if these mechanisms, the obstruction, perforation, bleeding, infarction or inflammation, lead to parietal irritation. So you can get some of these mechanisms that really only stimulate visceral innovation and 
in that situation, if you examine a patient, you may not actually get localised tenderness. In fact, sometimes that can be quite misleading. Right. So you can get quite a serious condition without rebound or as much pain because it's all visceral as opposed to somatic and parietal. Absolutely, Gavin. And maybe when you think about mesenteric ischemia, so um, someone with, say, uh, atrial fibrillation, uh, not rate controlled, throws off an embolus, goes down the mesenteric vessel and gives them small bowel uh, ischemia. That initial ischemia is actually only affecting the mucosa and the bowel wall, but not the adjacent parietal peritoneum. So in that person, they will have pain, but it's actually not well localised. And when you examine them, they actually have very poorly localised tenderness. They, They do have tenderness in the abdomen and in the region, but it's more regional tenderness as opposed to focal tenderness. And that's actually an important clinical finding on on examination. Okay, so moving back to the original question then, what's the best way of classifying the different conditions that cause the acute abdomen? So I sort of tend to think about gastrointestinal or bowel-related issues, and in that I include the pancreas and the liver and the biliary system. And then I think about renal issues. I think about vascular issues. And the, th- the fourth area is really gynecological. And I accept that there are many more other organs or systems, but really, if you think about those four systems, GI tract, which includes uh, hepatobiliary and pancreas, urological, vascular, and gynecological, that pretty well covers the vast majority of pathologies that can present as an acute abdomen. Excellent. Of those, what are the common pathologies that you would see? Yeah, look, the, in, in my practice anyway, they, they would really relate to the GI tract. So acute appendicitis would be uh, one of the most common. I see a lot of biliary pain, predominantly cholecystitis, so that's inflammation of the gallbladder from, the, from an obstructing stone. Pancreatitis, and of course, you know, that, that may be biliary nature, but it may also be alcohol and there's a growing number of patients who we see with pancreatitis who we just don't find an obvious cause, certainly not on their index uh, admission. Colonic diverticulitis and typically sigmoid diverticulitis. And then probably less common but still important because it's a, a reasonable, uh, well, it's a common presentation, bowel obstruction, but less commonly would be associated bowel ischemia because we tend to manage bowel obstruction reasonably well and they need an operation. We tend to do that before they get to uh, an ischemic or infarcted or, or perforated situation. So they, they would be the, the main pathologies, if you like. With the increased use of anticoagulation and the use of smartwatches reducing atrial fibrillation, has that reduced the amount of thrombotic events you see? And also with all the laparoscopic surgery that's been occurring more recently, has that reduced the amount of stenotic and adhesion-type events that you see as well? Are these numbers reducing overall? I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. 
No, unfortunately, uh, adhesion or bowel obstruction is not decreasing in, in incidence. It's probably fairly common. It's one of the most common acute admissions that we see with abdominal pain. And I don't think we've solved the problem of preventing adhesions. The fact that we can do a lot more procedures laparoscopically certainly does reduce the incidence of adhesional formation, but there are still many procedures that are undertaken which still create adhesions. And even laparoscopic pelvic surgery will create adhesions. Perhaps in the next generation, we may start to see some reduction in adhesional bowel obstruction, particularly as we move to more minimally invasive procedures um, using robots, etc. But certainly in our current practice, we would see a lot of bowel obstruction from adhesions. So what are the key pointers in the history that help you identify what the condition is and help you direct you towards a diagnosis? What would you watch out for? So the first thing I would say is that I'm always aware of some common pitfalls. There are certain patient groups where your history and examination is going to be attenuated because of their uh, either age group or uh, comorbidity or, or their demographics. So the very young the elderly, the obese, the pregnant person, the immunocompromised, and the cognitively impaired person, if they present with some sort of abdominal mischief, I think those groups, you have to be extremely vigilant and diligent about trying to get an appropriate history and undertaking your clinical examination. Because in these patients, for various reasons, their symptoms and signs and even physiological response can be attenuated and can even can even be difficult to elicit these sexual signs. And it can also be easy to misinterpret the seriousness of a problem. So it's the very young, the elderly, the obese, the pregnant woman, the immunocompromised patient and the cognitively impaired patient. So as well as being a difficult group to diagnose, are they also a group that's more prone to develop an acute abdomen or is it just that it's difficult to diagnose? I guess the point I'm making is that if any one of these groups of patients presented with an acute abdominal pain, it may not be obvious what the underlying problem is because of their uh, build or their comorbidities. Certainly the elderly, for example, might have attenuated signs and symptoms. The immunocompromised will often be sicker than what they actually look in terms of their signs and symptoms. But of course, some of these uh, patient groups are associated with a higher incidence of particular illnesses and immunocompromised, depending on what their comorbidity is. For example, if they're having treatment for malignancy, perhaps they're much more likely to develop conditions such as colitis. The cognitively impaired is more, more related to their Uh, the difficulty to elicit an appropriate history or signs and symptoms as opposed to, say, some pathological predisposition. So it does vary a bit, but I I guess I would be saying to to your listeners that just be wary of these groups, that they're not, I mean, I don't think you need to be worried that these are presenting with something unusual, but be aware that um, perhaps what you hear from the history and what you find from their physical examination, it may just be a little bit attenuated and modified based on their underlying condition. 
Okay, so in these groups, be extra vigilant in taking a history. But what are the key points you need to watch out for on taking a history to help you differentiate the different diagnoses? Yeah. So bearing in mind those mechanisms of causing pain, which I mentioned before, the obstruction and infarction, et cetera, and bearing in mind the innovation, I think if you understand those two things, I tend to focus on sort of four key areas. I focus on location of the pain, the duration of the pain, the severity of the pain, and the character of the pain. Now, I'm not saying that if you're doing a history or or examination, you're not going to be thorough, and clearly you want to cover off and pass history and medication history, et cetera. But I'm really starting off when I take a history to focus on location, duration, severity, and character. And then I move on to the actual physical examination. And again, there are a couple of areas that I tend to focus on. Excellent. I must say, I like your simplified approach of location, duration, severity, and character of assessing a patient. Perhaps you can give a few examples of which conditions fit into these areas. Perhaps a few examples to give us a bit of clinical context, please, would be great. Yeah. Well, I think to illustrate this location, duration, severity, character, uh, let's pick um, biliary pain, okay? And biliary pain uh, encompasses a range of actual presentation. So biliary colic is very common. So essentially biliary colic is obstruction of the gallbladder and the gallbladder as a natural response to obstruction will contract. But the contraction is intense, it is prolonged, and it's a very high amplitude contraction. And it's that high amplitude contraction that actually stimulates the mural receptors. Uh, these are This is the visceral innervation. And that is what causes the pain perception but it's only colic as in it's it's pain related only to obstruction it's not pain related to inflammation so if you examine that type of patient you will not elicit a tenderness so if you look at biliary colic its location it can be anywhere in the upper abdomen so if i'm seeing a patient and they tell me the pain is somewhere in the upper abdomen, then I would start to think, okay, you know, so could potentially biliary, potentially liver, could it be gastric, esophageal? But I'm starting to think about the organs in that area. Remembering that if it's biliary colic, it's not going to be well localised in terms of some patients will say, yes, it's in the right upper quadrant. Uh, Many patients will say it's somewhere in the epigastric region. They'll point to that area. And some, of course, will describe it radiating to the to the back. The duration is really important. Example, biliary colic typically does not last for less than 20 minutes. Biliary colic lasts anywhere between 20 minutes and several hours. So if a patient tells me that, you know, they get the stabbing pain that lasted for a few minutes, I'm pretty skeptical that it's going to be related to biliary pain or biliary colic just by knowing that. And the reason why biliary colic lasts for minimum 20 minutes and and probably longer, often longer, is that the natural contractile function of the gallbladder is a tonic contraction, which will last over maybe 20 minutes or so. If you then obstruct that gallbladder with a stone, the natural response to an obstruction in a smooth muscle hollow viscous is 
intense contraction, and that contraction is both intense and prolonged. And so the minimum time it would be contracting would be roughly 20 minutes, but typically it will contract for several hours. And then eventually the stimulus for contraction will resolve and the gallbladder relaxes, the stone moves out of the way, typically moves back into the gallbladder and the pain subsides. So just understanding that will allow you to correlate the duration to what you think might be going on. And then the severity of pain is really important. And I tend to listen to how the patient describes how they responded to the pain. Sure, you can ask the patient to rate the pain 0 to 10, 10 being the most severe pain that they've ever had. But often, if you listen to the patient's history, they will indicate the type of the severity of the pain. For example, they had to go home from work. It woke them up. They had to stop doing what they were doing at the time. They actually had to go to hospital. They called a locum out to see them. Now, most people would not do some of these things if the pain was not severe. Imagine having to get into the car and get to the hospital at two o'clock in the morning. You're really only going to do that, most people, if it's severe pain. And then the final one is the character. And perhaps this is the part that's not often well emphasized or understood. But by character of the pain, I'm really looking at differentiating a colic type pain from an inflammatory type pain. Acute appendicitis, that's inflammation. So it will be a constant pain worse with movement and focal in location. So it's something that they need to keep still or the patient will wish to keep still. Whereas a colic type pain, whether it be biliary colic or intestinal colic or ureteric colic, their character of the pain will be severe, cramping. They can't find a comfortable position to position themselves in and they're usually moaning, groaning, writhing around. And that tells me the character of the pain is more colic pain. So really, the history is so important. I always seem to emphasize to the medical students in orthopedics about how the history helps you make the diagnosis, while the examination helps you confirm it, and investigations help you stage it. Is it the same thing applied to general surgery as well? Oh, absolutely, Gavin. I mean, whilst I've focused on location, duration, severity, and character for abdominal presentations, I don't think you should underestimate having a thorough systematic uh, history. And in fact, that's all part of uh, any consultant surgical practice is to have that because the history, I mean, obviously the history uh, allows you to develop rapport, et cetera, but a, a key part of the history is to try to triangulate information and also to do a risk assessment. So if a patient's had a past history of atrial fibrillation or they have a, a vas- you know, vascular disease, and then they present with acute abdominal pain, you know, you really have to start thinking about aortic aneurysm, vascular compromise to the bowel, et cetera. And of course, comorbidities are important, as I said, to assess their risk, particularly if they're going to need an operation. Excellent. Now let's look at a different condition such as acute diverticulitis. How does that condition vary in the history compared to the acute colic we're just talking about? So acute diverticulitis typically will affect the sigmoid colon, not exclusively, of course, but that's the most common location where diverticular disease occurs in a large bowel. So the location, if, if, if any one of those diverticulum becomes inflamed, that's what we call diverticulitis, the location of the pain will be typically in the left iliac fossa 
However, if you remember, the sigmoid colon has a sigmoid loop, and so sometimes the sigmoid colon can flop across and can be either lying in the midline or even in the right iliac fossa. So if they have tenderness anywhere in that lower abdomen, I start to think about diverticulitis. If they're in the left iliac fossa, you know, it makes it more likely. If it's in the midline, perhaps it could be diverticulitis, and if it's in the right side, then diverticulitis, query appendicitis, and other inflammatory problems there. And then the duration, well, obviously it depends on when they present, but typically patients will present with several hours, if not half a day or a day of uh, worsening, gradually worsening pain, and the duration will be at least of that length. So it's not a pain that then goes away. It's actually persistent. And the severity can be quite varied. But by the time I get to see them or patients present to the emergency department, it's relatively severe. And and the character of the pain is one of sharp pain, localised, very tender, particularly on palpation. And that's when you might get the history that when they went over a bump, it was very sore. They they really didn't want to get out of out of the car. It was more comfortable laying still. It's interesting, the two different types of conditions. One of the conditions I used to see a lot of when I was a junior registrar, and I'm not sure it occurs quite as commonly, is the ruptured peptic ulcer. I'd expect with the acute inflammation of the peritoneum, it would present in a slightly different fashion again. Could perhaps describe how that would present and if it's much different to the other two conditions we've already talked about? Yeah, and that's probably a really interesting example because you're right, we don't see perforations as much these days now that we understand helicobacter pylori and its role in peptic ulcer disease. But if it's an early perforation, then they may well present with upper abdominal peritonitis. So it's very tender and it's all upper abdomen. But of course, many patients will have initially had some pain in the upper abdomen, but as the infection spread, they end up with generalized peritonitis, then they they will have tenderness right throughout their abdomen and in fact in that situation they usually just have a rigid abdomen they, they're guarding so much involuntary guarding so in that case if, if a patient actually has generalized abdominal tenderness or guarding i think you can be pretty safe in assuming that they have an underlying peritonitis and then you can work out what the cause of that is perforation is usually on the cards there Right, well, that brings us towards how the examination will actually influence what you decide as well on the diagnosis. What are the key points you could put towards an examination and what are the things you're looking for predominantly? Yeah, so with a physical examination, I tend to do two things. One, I really want to look at the patient and work out what are they like generally and particularly how sick are they? Do they have a sympathetic response due to the pain, you know, anyone who has pain will develop a tachycardia, they may sweat a bit, um, they may even look a little bit pale because they become peripherally shut down. But that's a, a perhaps a heightened sympathetic response, which is a bit different to someone who is is exhibiting a systemic inflammatory response, which is the SERS response, where they have global problem of, of hyperperfusion perhaps related to sepsis or even shock. So I really try to work out how sick are they. And and that's really just looking at things like pulse rate, respiratory rate. In fact, the respiratory rates are very sensitive and important indicator, if you like, of how unwell your patient is. Uh, and then, of course, blood pressure and how well perfused they are, whether they're cool or clammy or 
or flushed. I saw a patient on the weekend who had acute perforated diverticulitis with fecal peritonitis, and they were very flushed and they had a significant SERS response. Then after I've done that sort of global assessment, I, I then start to focus on the abdominal examination. Right. And what are the key points for that that you look for? Is it the tenderness or the way they are sitting or guarding themselves that affects you as a lot, or is it actually localised sites of tenderness? Yeah, pretty much all of that, actually, Gavin. Um, you know, you get an idea after a while when you're having a chat to the patient, you know, how are they responding to their pain? Are they lying very still or are they can't find a comfortable position? So that's already telling you whether there's an inflammatory component to the pain. Certainly, all medical students will have been taught about the look um, the listen, the feel sort of approach. And I would certainly advocate that you're looking for distension, looking for scars, looking for asymmetry. And then in terms of palpation, it's really the area of tenderness and whether there's guarding and also whether there's an underlying mass. And of course, be systematic about it. And in most textbooks, they talk about the nine areas of the abdomen divided by grid lines. And, you know, so start off in a place where there's no or minimal tenderness or where the patient says they haven't got pain, and then you work your way around. And in the, in doing that, you will then work out where there is maximal tenderness, the area of tenderness, as in, you know, is it just in one area or whether it spans several areas, and, of course, the severity of the tenderness. I mentioned about a, a mass and guarding, well, you certainly want to know whether there's any guarding or not. And in terms of the mass, or if there is an associated mass, the best way to feel a, an abdominal mass, uh, particularly in someone who has an acute abdomen, is really to start off with light palpation and just use the flat of your palm. That gives you the most information because you're using the flat of your palm and you get all that sensory input to work out whether there's a mass there or not. And if you press too hard or if you just use the tips of your fingers, you can actually miss a mass, which is very obvious to someone else who then uses the flat of their palm. What are the key things that cause a mass? So apart from the abdominal aortic aneurysm, which comes to mind, but I presume in the acute abdomen that may already be perforated, what other things can cause a mass in the abdomen that you're looking for? If I ever feel a mass in someone who's got an inflammatory sort of presentation, it's it's probably going to be an inflammatory mass. There's a, a phlegmon there of a mentum, bowel, maybe even a collection, an infected collection. So it could be any one of those. Occasionally you might get a hematoma that might present like that. So the, what you're saying is a mass is really a walled-off uh, mini-perforation in the abdomen, which is what you're really feeling for. Is, is that correct, or am I misinterpreting it? Yeah, it may not be walled-off perforation. It may be a, a perforation that was initially walled off and then became a free perforation, or it may just be the normal reaction of the omentum trying to seal over in an area of inflammation so a patient who has Crohn's disease, um, particularly if they have an acute flare-up but has not perforated, will actually have a mass or can actually have a mass because they'll have this large inflamed bit of small bowel. The mesentery around it will become inflamed and edematous and macroscopically you can see some fat wrapping. But importantly, the omentum will actually start to try to adhere 
around that inflammation to try to wall it off. So that's not a perforation, but that's just a normal reaction to an acute inflammatory process that's involving the the parietal peritoneum. Gee, the body's an amazing thing. I always remember the momentum being called the policeman of the admin. Now, going back to the nine quadrants you're talking about for assessing for examination, if you're talking about an incarcerated femoral hernia, where would that appear in the nine quadrants? I mean, I would have thought that'd be outside that area. Yeah, I mean, a femoral hernia is any hernia that's within the femoral triangle. So it's it's going to be below the inguinal ligament. It's going to be in the proximal thigh region. And, and the most common location is through the femoral canal, which is just lateral to the adductor tendon insertion. So what you do is you get your mid-inguinal point, which actually locates your femoral pulse. Um, you then go a few centimetres below that. You're still feeling the femoral pulse, and then you feel medial to that, and that will be close to your femoral canal. And, of course, you should be able to feel the adductor tendon, so it should be lateral to that. So it's in that small space that you might feel a femoral hernia. But an incarcerated femoral hernia can be very difficult to diagnose clinically because it's quite a small space, and you don't need a lot of bowel in there, and the bowel may not actually protrude through the canal. So you may get a suspicion of a femoral canal hernia by some tenderness there, but if you don't feel a mass there, it doesn't mean that there's no no femoral hernia there. So really the textbook answer, though, for the nine quadrants doesn't really encompass this area and is always worth looking past the ninth quadrant into these corners as well. No, you're right. And on that point, there are pelvic pathologies involving all the different foramina in the pelvis, uh, obturator foramen, et cetera which also can lead to internal hernias. And, of course, there's a whole range of retroperitoneal pathologies that can present with acute abdominal pain. And I remember seeing a patient who actually had a fall, then presented with acute anterior abdominal pain, very little by way of back pain, then developed bruising down the right thigh, and on a CT scan had a very large psoas Hematoma. And so there's an example of acute abdominal presentation related to retroperitoneal pathology. Well, perhaps moving on to investigations. What are the main investigations you tend to use? Obviously, you've already mentioned about the standard observations of blood pressure and pulse rate and respiratory rate. And I presume urine output also fits into that too. But they're really just basic tests you'd be doing. But what investigations are the bloods or other more radiological investigations do you rely upon? Well, Gavin, as a surgeon, I try to keep things pretty simple, and it's really blood tests and imaging. They're the mainstay of investigating for an acute abdominal presentation. Obviously, I would add, for example, doing a urinalysis and excluding pregnancy in a female of a fertile age. I would certainly do an ECG in patients who are 50 years or over, or sometimes even younger, and in fact, this day and age, 40 years and over, it's prudent to do an ECG if there's any concern, just to exclude those non-surgical pathologies. But the blood tests are really inflammatory markers, so white cell count and a C-reactive protein. And then, depending on what you think's going on, but quite often, Lipase will be undertaken because pancreatitis is common and can easily be diagnosed on a serum lipase level. And then depending on how sick you think the patient is, you might then look at the acid-base balance of the patient. So looking at a lactate or possibly a 
a blood gas to look at the pH and, and calculate the acid base. Because I think that then speaks to the systemic wellness or unwellness of your patient. Now, obviously, I haven't mentioned things like liver function tests, etc., but those more targeted blood tests will really depend on what you think may be a differential that you want to either rule in or rule out. So if I think it's biliary, they will get liver function tests. If you think it's some bleeding, they will get a hemoglobin, of course. But generally speaking, as I said, inflammatory markers a lipase and acid-based balance, and, and of course, in females, beta-HCG, and in some age groups, an ECG. In terms of imaging, really, in this day and age, the mainstay of imaging for an acute abdominal presentation is a, a contrast CT scan, preferably with oral and intravenous contrast. Obviously, in some patients who have renal impairment, we may need to avoid intravenous contrast. doesn't mean it can't be given, but it's something that needs to be carefully considered. A CT scan without intravenous contrast has limitations, but may still be helpful. Well, the obvious question that a medical student might ask, and myself included in this, is what about someone who you think you're going to take to theatre, giving them oral contrast? Is that a contraindication or was that still performed? No, it's not, not really a contraindication. Look, yes, you, you want your patient fasted, but if you need to make a diagnosis, and the amount of oral contrast that's given can be moderated, and in itself, it's not a contraindication to proceeding with theatre. The fasting state of the patient is pretty much what they had before they came into hospital is, is much more relevant. What about the role of an ultrasound nowadays? Is that less indicated given these fast CT scans and contrast CT scans, or do you still use an ultrasound at any stage? No, we do use ultrasound a lot, and I don't want to mislead your listeners in, in saying that the mainstay of imaging is CT scan. I mean, we certainly use a lot of CT scans for abdominal pain, but no, ultrasound is actually quite important. And so if, if I think a patient's presenting with a biliary-type pain, they will get an ultrasound ahead of a CT, and they may only need an ultrasound. In a female patient, particularly with pelvic pain or lower abdominal pain, invariably the ultrasound will be useful either in diagnosing a problem or excluding a problem. And in females who we suspicious of appendicitis, an ultrasound is actually very useful because it can help differentiate gynecological problems and ovarian problems from acute appendicitis. And whilst uh, ultrasounds uh, tend to be more operator-dependent, I think the quality of ultrasonography in our part of the world is very good, generally pretty reliable. Obviously, the other two investigations that come to mind are things like MRI scan or the laparoscope. The role of MRI scan, is that more retroperitoneal structures or is that for anything or less common in the acute abdomen? Uh, I think in the in the spectrum of acute abdominal presentations, MRIs are, are probably very selective and limited. So that's not to say they don't have value, but even retroperitoneal pathologies, good contrast CT scan, the modern CT scans, high resolution will give you the information you need. The MRIs are really limited in terms of acute abdominal presentations. Perhaps maybe someone who has query cholangitis, then you might want to do an MRCP. But even in that situation, that patient would have initially had an ultrasound plus or minus a CT be unusual these days to need an MRI. Then laparoscope, is that really left to once you've decided to do surgery or was it ever done as a diagnostic procedure? 
certainly is uh, used as a diagnostic procedure. However, I think given the improvements and high quality imaging we have these days, often you can have a reasonable idea of the underlying pathology before you do an operation. However, there are times, and I, and I don't want to say that this is uncommon, in fact, it's relatively common that we would still rely on a diagnostic laparoscopy to identify what's going on. And a really good example of that patients who present with lower abdominal pain, particularly on the right side, do they have acute appendicitis or some other problem like a Meckles, et cetera. And acute appendicitis, the imaging diagnostic features are pretty good these days. But of course, there are still many patients who will have an equivocal imaging and you're going to rely on your clinical acumen. And, and eventually, if you think they need an operation, they'll get a diagnostic laparoscopy. Okay, let's move on to management. What's your standard management plan when you see a, a patient with an acute abdomen? Yeah, so so I think there's probably three things I look at. I look at resuscitation, providing analgesia, and determining whether they the patient needs an operation or not. So resuscitation is really important, particularly if they're unwell or if they have other comorbidities. It's important to make sure that you resuscitate your patient, and I mean resuscitation with oxygen with fluids and dealing with any medical problems which actually are active, for example, diabetic ketoacidosis, et cetera, which may be a secondary problem to the underlying surgical pathology. And then I, I mentioned analgesia. I mean, don't forget, these patients have come in with pain. So analgesia will be one of the first uh, interventions that they, they get. So adequate analgesia is entirely appropriate. And I know that maybe in your time, in my time, Gavin, you know, there was always a concern that giving someone a narcotic analgesia is going to mask their acuteness or their severity of their pain and may impede a diagnosis. But that's really a myth. You know, it really doesn't affect how easily we can diagnose the problem. So giving a patient appropriate, adequate analgesia is important. And then the third part of management is really determining, does this patient need an operation or not? And if they need an operation, what needs to happen before they get to theatre in terms of resuscitation and any other investigations or interventions, particularly this day and age where so many people are on anticoagulants? What are the ones that really are time-dependent and really critical that you need to get the theatre straight off? What are the ones that you have to watch out for and really be on the ball for? Sure, yeah. Look, they're not many, but I would say a closed-loop bowel obstruction is one, a perforated viscous, because obviously the patient has peritonitis, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy because of the risk of ongoing bleeding, ruptured or dissecting aortic aneurysm, and an ovarian torsion because of the, the risk of losing the ovary. Yeah, so closed loop obstruction is really important because a closed loop, which can be diagnosed on a CT scan because it has a characteristic appearance of the small bowel and, and the mesentery, really represents not just an obstruction, but vascular compromise. So we really worry about small bowel ischemia or infarction. And if you're going to save that bowel and, and more importantly, save the patient, uh, early intervention is required knowing that you don't need a lot of ischemic time before the bowel actually becomes uh, infarcted. You only need a, a short period of time, you know, maybe only a few hours. Perforated viscous, obviously, someone with peritonitis, they need an urgent operation. And I've mentioned ectopic pregnancy and I think a ruptured or dissecting aortic aneurysm is pretty self-explanatory, um, high mortality without an intervention. 
On that last point, a question off the cuff. I understand with large bowel ischemia, you can actually excise the large bowel, do a defunctioning colostomy, and then reverse it later on. But with the small bowel ischemia, can you excise a small bowel and rejoin it, or what actually happens in that scenario? Yeah, well, there are, I guess in this respect, the, the fundamental differences between small bowel and large bowel are actually quite relevant. So the small bowel, first of all, we have several metres of small bowel. We can sacrifice small bowel. I mean, I guess you can say that about the colon, that you can, in fact, you can live without any of your colon, but you can't live without your small bowel. But nonetheless, you do have several metres of small bowel. So if you have a segment of small bowel, then you, you can actually resect it. Small bowel is best treated by resection and an end-to-end anastomosis. And the reason why you can anastomose small bowel, which is different to, say, large bowel, is the degree of contamination that's associated with the condition and also the vascularity. If you have a perforated large bowel, you will have faecal peritonitis. And faecal peritonitis is associated with a high mortality, uh, particularly if not treated in time, and also significant morbidity. And if you have someone who's very sick and you join the large bowel to large bowel, Whilst the vascular supply to the large bowel may still be intact, its oxygen requirements are much higher and therefore it's much more likely to be susceptible to ischemia. So if someone is hypotensive, they're much more likely for that anastomosis not to take very well. They, they have an increased risk of, of leaks. On the other hand, if you're looking at small bowel, even if you have perforated small bowel with peritonitis, the small bowel has an extremely good blood supply. And so in that situation, as long as you resect the disease pathology and you drain all the infection, that is you do a thorough washout, you can actually rejoin the small bowel and anastomose that. And usually you will have intact anastomosis with a with not a high chance of a leak. There are obviously caveats to that. Patients who have Crohn's disease who already have diseased bowel and you're only resecting the bit that's problematic, but you may be leaving diseased bowel behind, then that's problematic, then you may not join that up. And patients who have small bowel ischemia from uh, thromboembolic events, sometimes it's very hard to know where the demarcation of ischemia and infarction has occurred. And in that situation, you might resect and just close off both ends of the small bowel, leave the operation at that point, and then come back within 24, 48 hours and do a second look laparotomy to determine whether additional small bowel has demarcated in terms of ischemia or infarction. So in that situation, you know, you may not actually join up until your second look procedure. This is why I love doing these podcasts. I learned so much from it. So it's brilliant. Uh, Moving on to perhaps the last couple of points I want to ask you about. Extra abdominal type conditions that cause acute abdomen. Are there any ones particularly you need to watch out for? Yeah, I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, but thoracic issues, thoracic pathologies like pneumonia, um, pulmonary emboli, and coronary ischemia or cardiac ischemia can well mimic abdominal, acute abdominal pain. For the uh, thoracic or vascular surgeons, They may have to deal with the dissecting, descending, uh, or aortic arch aneurysm, and they can sometimes present with abdominal pain. Then below the abdomen, well, maybe not 
too many things. I mean, I think in a male, a testicular torsion, which in itself is a surgical emergency and, and time critical, may sometimes present with abdominal pain or lower abdominal pain uh, without actually having much pain in the scrotum, uh, believe it or not. So again, thorough history, absolutely thorough examination and understanding your possible pathologies is key there. So they, they would be sort of the extra abdominal. I mean, I know some people might consider the retroperitoneum is as extra abdominal, but you know, for the purposes of managing acute abdominal pain, I would include the retroperitoneal as part of the of, of my consideration of abdominal pathologies. I wouldn't consider they are extra abdominal per se. There's a whole range of medical causes. Once I've mentioned some regarding PEs and, and pneumonias. There are some you know, weird and wonderful metabolic pathologies or pharmacological and hematological, neurological, immunological and infective sort of causes. So having some awareness that you may be dealing with a medical problem can really be important. I guess for most surgeons, that starts to become more obvious once we've ruled out surgical pathologies. Brilliant. Well, I think we've covered a lot. Um, perhaps are there any key messages you think the young medical student or general practitioner needs to be aware of that we've left off or that you'd like to recount on? Yeah, thanks, Gavin. I really enjoyed this discussion. I mean, I think if I was to, to summarise things, I would say that acute abdominal pain is pretty common. The importance of assessing a patient really will depend on a thorough history and examination, both absolutely essential and of course, there are some investigations that we can rely on with blood tests and imaging. But really, that whole process is there to rule in and rule out critical emergencies and those time critical conditions. Just be aware of some of the patient groups which can present as pitfalls. And, and I mentioned the elderly and the very young and the obese, uh, the pregnant woman, immunocompromised. So those groups of patients and and just understanding some basic anatomy and physiology and particularly around the dual innervation of the abdomen, the visceral versus the somatic innervation. I think if you have good understanding of that, I think um, it does allow you to then start to understand how best to manage acute abdominal presentations. Well, that's brilliant. It's been fantastic having you on Aussie Med Ed, and I thank you very much for your time, Dr. Adrian Anthony. Thanks, Gavin, I, and I enjoyed this discussion. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'd like to remind you that the information provided today is just for general medical advice and does not pertain to one particular medical condition or one way of treating a particular condition. If you have any concerns about information raised today, please do not hesitate to contact your general practitioner for further information. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please don't hesitate to give us a like or tell your friends about it or give us a positive review. We look forward to presenting another podcast to you in the near future on a different topic. Until then, stay safe. Thank you very much.